This wing's been closed for years. What was this place? Purgatory. Fashioned by the hands of men. Twisted, lonely souls. The worst of the criminally insane were locked up in here like animals. This whole facility was shut down in the 40s, wasn't it? Some sort of scandal? The young girl on the staff was accidentally locked in here over the holidays. The inmates kept her hidden for days. She was raped hundreds of times. When they found her, she was barely alive. And with child. That girl was Amanda Kruger. Her child, Freddy. The bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Some say he was murdered. Though no body was ever found. You said something before about laying him to rest. You must find the remains and bury him in hallowed ground. Hallowed ground? Sister? If your only faith is science, doctor, it may be you that's laid to rest. Psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. I am the eater of wood. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another nightmarish installment of the greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 345, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Now, I'm sure I talked about this on the episode where we did the original, but... When I was a kid and caught part of the original on TV, the Johnny Depp bed death really shook me to my core. Yeah. Like, I was not in a good place as a kid. Like, it really freaked me out. And I think it had an impact on me watching more of these movies as time went on. Not that it would, like, scare me, but I think I think I just had a bad taste in my mouth for <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. Because I haven't seen a lot of these. Although, when they did the remake in 09 or whatever, I did go see that. Yeah. But I'm glad this one's in my life now. It certainly has a ton of cool elements to it. Things that, like you were telling me, would be reused in later renditions. Yeah, this definitely added some material that would just go on to be part of the character of Freddy Krueger and the franchise and be used throughout. It's also cool to have the Nancy character come back. Yeah, and I think that it just really hits a home run in delivering uh, pretty much everything you want. It's a well-crafted machine. 
that really reminds me of the 80s, looks like the 80s, feels like the 80s. I think they just lucked into having talented people work on this because sort of like Friday the 13th, and there will be a lot of crossover and parallel thinking and similarities and yeah, everything else with these franchises, but they would constantly churn over who was involved, the creative voices, the directors, the writers, the actors. Everything was constantly changing, but they lucked into having Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont, who would go on to have pretty awesome careers involved in huge things. And then they would team up with Craven, who had worked on the original, coming back. He does a version of the script, which they don't ultimately use, but had a huge influence on it. And I don't know, it just works out. And it's a top-notch horror sequel, in my opinion. For sure. I have a lot of mixed feelings about A Nightmare on Elm Street as a franchise. I don't particularly love a lot of it. I don't have the same fondness that I do for Halloween and Friday the 13th for some reason. And I think it's because after this movie, I kind of feel like everything else is stupid and pointless. Yeah. I will say that in terms of creativity and visual ingenuity and imaginative things, always A Nightmare on Elm Street is a step above a lot of the generic stuff in Halloween and Friday the 13th. I will give it credit for that. They always came up with unique-looking things. Mm -hmm. But the character of Freddy Krueger starts to stink. Yeah, for sure. Just riding around on a skateboard wearing Ray-Bans, saying bitch, (laughs) eating Doritos or whatever the fuck. It's like, oh, God. Hanging outside the quick stop. Trying to be cool. It sucks. These third entries in these big franchises are always an interesting one because I think usually with the second one, there's a little bit more, let's just try to redo what we did with the first one. Uh-huh. And then I always feel like the third one, there's a little bit like, all right, we got to try to do something different. Yeah. And it could go one way or the other, but it's always an interesting entry. We're not going to spend a ton of time talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which came out in 85. Other than the latent homosexuality, which has become a big talking point, there's a whole documentary about it. Other than that aspect of it, which is kind of interesting and makes for a unique look at a slasher movie from a time period where gay ideas weren't fully explored, other than that novelty, I think the movie is not really that good. It's not terrible. It's not as bad as some of the sequels that would come after three, but I don't know. I, I think it's mostly forgettable, and it doesn't really bring anything new to the table, whereas this movie... It really does build upon the mythology established in the first film, but in a positive, cool way. Absolutely. It brings a lot of new ideas to a pre-existing character that work. lot to talk about. Before we jump into Dream Warriors, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter, slash X, at GreatestPod. Please email us, GreatestPod, at gmail.com. We would love to read your email on the show. We will be returning to that segment this week. We took a little break last time. For those of you who have not already done so, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please tell your friends. Please give us a rating and review. We love to read the reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to, you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby on there. And you can also reach out to us to request a free sticker or do a listener request, as is the case 
of late. We are moving now through the spring of next year. Before you know it, the listener requests spots will be gone. So act now. The prices are the same as they were. We're doing basically $50 for a movie up to two and a half hours and then 75 for longer than that. We'll negotiate that with you privately, though. So reach out to us on x slash Twitter at GreatestPod or email GreatestPod at gmail.com and we'll get that going with you. So let's jump into Dream Warriors. It was released in 1987 and directed by Chuck Russell, screenplay by Russell, Frank Darabont, Wes Craven, and Bruce Wagner, story by Craven and Wagner, based on characters created by Craven. Matt, yep, straight talk only in here. <laughs> if you haven't already seen A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, you can check that out now, streaming on Max or AMC+. Plus. Yes. I was having some difficulty on Max. At one point, I tried to rewind it after the, the scene with Zaza Gabor because <laughs> I wanted to rewatch it because I enjoyed that part so much. And then it just like froze up on me. So then I had to restart it and fast forward back to the middle. Oh, wow. We yeah. love getting the technology updates from Matt, <laughs> his problems in the streaming realm. Well, you know, I think it's another example of why physical media is so important. Yeah, I would agree with you on that, although I did use Max as well because the Blu-rays for this are sort of outdated, and I do think that, not to step on physical media spotlights yeah. toes a little bit, I think we are in dire need of a 4K Nightmare on Elm Street collection. Come on. The Blu-rays are pretty old and, and not great transfers. I think we could do for an upgrade there. We originally covered A Nightmare on Elm Street, the first film in the franchise way back on... October 25th, 2018, episode number 115, which coincidentally came one after us doing the original Suspiria. That's crazy. And we just did the remake. Something we realized right before we recorded this episode. Yeah, definitely not intentional. It never is, but it always seems to work out like this. <laughs> Strange. <laughs> the budget for Dream Warriors was between $4.3 and $4.6 the box office was $44.8 million. This was the first film from New Line Cinema to receive a national theatrical release, 1,300 theaters. Prior to this, their films were released on a regional basis, opening in several cities one month and moving to other cities the next. That's something we've touched on a little bit on this podcast. It's still kind of hard to believe, and I'm sure maybe for some of our younger listeners, hard to even imagine at all. But a lot of movies were not nationally released all at once wide yeah. releases that is weird they would roll them out slowly over time kind of traveling almost like a tour or something that pretty much was out the window by the 90s but yeah new line cinema was a pretty small independent deal up until basically the lord of the rings trilogy kicked them into the big boys league mm -hmm. but for a long time, they were known as the house that Freddie built. That's because right. Because that was their big franchise that took them into the next level in the 80s. I don't really love the Rotten Tomatoes stuff, but I guess to put Dream Warriors into some perspective, this did have a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is interesting just because comparing it to the vitriol spewed against the final chapter in the Friday the 13th franchise, people by this point were recognizing the creativity at least in this film yeah yeah now granted part two was not critically praised which is why they tried a different approach but yeah 
I, I think that it was met with some of the same criticism that maybe Friday the 13th would get about mindless kills and the violence and all that stuff, but there was definitely a recognition that uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was a step above in terms of creativity and artistry. Following the critical failure of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, New Line Cinema was unsure if they would continue with the series. Wes Craven, who wrote and directed the original A Nightmare on Elm Street, did not participate in the first sequel. He had not wanted the original to evolve into a franchise, but due to immense dissatisfaction with Freddy's Revenge, signed on to co-write the screenplay for the third installment with the intention that it would end the series. All right. Well, you got to respect the fact that he's like, all right, I got to get back in this and write the ship. Yeah, I think that that's kind of a a cool way to do it, and it fits in with one of my big talking points that will come up at the end of the film about how I wish this was the conclusion of everything with The Nightmare on Elm Street. Even though that would have taken away a long franchise, I don't think the trade-off has really been worth it. However, the success of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, prompted a continuation of the series. It's the same old song and dance. It's exactly the same as the final chapter. They're never over. Craven's first concept for the film was to have Freddy Krueger invade the real world. Krueger would haunt the actors filming a new Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. New Line Cinema rejected the meta-cinematic idea, but years later, Craven's concept was brought to the screen in Wes Craven's new nightmare. Craven himself would be unavailable for directing as he was tied up with filming Deadly Friend around the same time. Huh. I think when we did Scream 2, I referred to that film as Deadly Blessing, which is a real film, but it's a different film. Okay. We also brought up New Nightmare when we were talking about Scream 2 because New Nightmare was his first foray into the meta world, which would continue into the Scream franchise. My thoughts on New Nightmare are pretty simple i guess it's a cool idea and it seems like it should be way better than it actually is but when you watch the movie it's kind of boring yeah i have seen at least parts of that one but don't really recall it too well it almost works but it doesn't quite yeah it's just not that good although it might be like the fourth best in the series well there you go (laughs) i don't really think many of them are that good fourth best Maybe third. No, oh, okay. There's only, well, there's six, and then there's New Nightmare, then there's Freddy vs. Jason, then there's the remake. Right. So there's a lot. I guess Freddy vs. Jason is probably like the third best. Yeah. In my opinion. Wow. That's saying something. I can't remember. Were you a fan of Freddy vs. Jason? I'm okay on it. I'm lukewarm. I did see it in the theater. There's some fun to be had there. The inspiration for a meta horror idea taking place while filming a horror film was actually, I don't know if it was parallel thinking or if Craven took the idea, but there was a movie called Return to Horror High from 87. I have Return to Horror High on DVD. Yeah. Yeah. That's about a horror movie. It's not a good movie, but it's the meta idea. A young George Clooney. Ooh. Not as like a lead or anything. He just has like, he's like a cop. Coming off of Grizzly 2, which wasn't released for 40 years later. Before it was decided what script would be used for the film's story, both John Saxon and Robert Englund wrote their own scripts for a third Nightmare film. In Saxon's script called How the Nightmare on Elm Street All Began, not the greatest title, All Began, (laughs) which would have been a prequel story, Freddy would ultimately turn out to have been innocent or at least set up for the murders by Charles Manson, who along with his followers would have been the main culprit of the murders, Freddy would be forced by the mob of angry parents to make a confession 
of the crimes, which would enrage them further. After they lynch Freddy, he comes back to avenge his wrongful death by targeting the parents' children. No. <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah. I don't know, even know if you really could incorporate real historical figures that were still alive, like Charles Manson, into a story like this. That would be weird. I don't know that anyone would think that's a great idea for a variety of reasons. I'd be interested to see it, though. In England's treatment called Freddy's Funhouse, the protagonist would have been Tina Gray's older sister, who would have been in college by the time Tina was murdered and ends up coming back to Springwood to investigate how she died. For those of you who aren't immediately remembering, Tina is the blonde girl who's friends with Nancy in the first film who gets killed by going up onto the ceiling and all that shit. Yep. In the script, Freddy had claimed the 1428 Elm Street house for his own in the dream world, setting up booby traps like Nancy did against him. According to England, part of it later ended up being used in the pilot episode of Freddy's Nightmares, which was a TV show, after the script had been lying around unused for a few years. I think I've summed up my thoughts pretty well. I think one is very close to a masterpiece if not a masterpiece, and I think 3 is a very strong sequel and one of the better horror sequels of the entire decade. But aside from that, I'm not a big fan of the rest of the franchise. I know Matt's not got a super big familiarity with it in general. Yeah. But 2 is okay, and then 4, 5, and 6 get progressively worse I think my biggest problem with 4 is that it's sort of like Alien 3 in that it cancels out basically everything I that you cared that. about about 3. I hate when that happens. We'll get more into 4 later, but yeah, it is really kind of a gut punch. And yeah. the way that 3 ends could just be so perfect to wrap up the story. But they were never going to get that. No, But 3 not. is cool. I'm, I'm glad that this is a part of my life now. <laughs> so glad that yeah. you've said it twice. <laughs> Wes Craven has said about the direction that he and Wagner wanted to take the franchise in that, quote, we decided that it could no longer be one person fighting Freddy. It had to be a group because the souls of Freddy's victims have made Freddy stronger. He also called Heather Langenkamp to ask her if he may include her character Nancy in the script, which she agreed to. In interviews with cast and crew in the DVD extras, it is revealed that the original idea for the film centered around the kids separately traveling to a specific location to die by suicide. Hmm. Later, it would have been discovered that the common link between the youths was that they dreamed of Freddy Krueger. Since suicide was a social taboo issue, the storyline was abandoned. Some aspects of the idea remained in the film. But the real cool carryover is that Wes Craven gets Heather Langenkamp back in the mix. Yeah. And then she's a huge part of what becomes the movie. Yeah, I think that Langenkamp getting the hero's treatment is one of the fun moments of the movie where you're like, fuck yeah, this feels awesome. That's right. According to Craven, the idea for the mental hospital treating the Dream Warriors was not just some riff on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but instead inspired by real-life establishments. Quote, at the time, there was kind of a movement of such places that even advertised on television, send us your troubled child and we'll make them okay. And essentially, they were like prisons or insane asylums. That's creepy. You're left with Craven's DNA all over Russell and Darabont's well-oiled and inventive script. They've come up with something that is jam-packed. This movie is only 96 minutes, and it is jam-packed with stuff. With plot, it is all meaningful. It goes from one cool set piece into another. 
it's a really fun thrill ride that once you get past the unpleasantness of the gross Freddy stuff, in other words, once you're old enough to see that they're special effects and not be fucking freaked out by them, it's a really goofy, fun thrill ride. Closer to a Goonies, except it's got really gross stuff in it. Totally. And it's definitely R-rated. I'm not saying that kids should watch it, but it's kind of got that feel to it, where it's almost an adventure. Yeah, well, and the effects are really fun to watch, too. Yeah, well, that's definitely something that they've always had over the other franchises, right. is that they look unique. There's nothing really like this. That's true, yeah. The film opens with a quote that says, Sleep, those little slices of death, how I loathe them from Edgar Allan Poe. I enjoyed that as an opening. The quote attributed to Poe is highly disputed as actually being from him. Oh. However, there is still a chance that he could have been the one to say it. I, I kind of prefer to believe that it was. I mean, why not? That works for me. I don't know if you noticed who did the score of the film. I didn't. Angelo Badalamente. Oh, nice. Yeah. No, I didn't see that. Lynch's frequent collaborator. Yeah. They also got those metal songs from Dokken and stuff. Mm -hmm. This was part of that era. A lot of crossover with Friday the 13th. Yeah. They were doing a lot of the same stuff. I can kind of see now why it felt inevitable to have Freddy versus Jason. Of course. When I was younger and I hadn't seen all these movies, it just seemed like, okay, well, I guess they're two famous guys. That's the connection. They're famous killers from movies. I don't know. But now that you actually watch all of these movies, they do feel like they're in the same universe yeah. somehow. Similar budgets, probably a lot of crossover in terms of people working on effects right. and stuff. And, you know, it's 1987, two years after the events of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, is the only film of the original six in the franchise to not open right in the midst of a nightmare sequence. Instead... Kristen Parker, played by Patricia Arquette, is working on a papier-mâché house. Evidently, everyone on set was in love with Arquette, and everyone knew she was destined to be a star. The most shocking reveal yeah. of the history of this movie. <laughs> I wasn't on set, and right. I'm still in love with her, and I'm still <laughs> sure that she's destined to be a star. <laughs> she does have a quality. Winona Ryder auditioned for the part. Oh, she wow. was deemed to be too young. Hmm. Arquette was actually close to being recast early in shooting because some of the scheduling got messed up and she was working really late at night and forgot a lot of her lines. Oh, no. And it was, I guess Russell stuck up with her because I think some of the producers wanted to get rid of her. He was like, no, this is the girl. Can we work that into every yeah. episode from now on? Well, it's relevant. Kristen is awake and seems very interested in staying that way, eating Folger's crystals right out of the can and washing them down with Diet Coke. How about that? I like that, though, because the audience immediately gets it. Right. They know exactly what that is. Yep. That's a joke that the audience knows, okay, well, we're living in a world where she's already experiencing the nightmares. It's well after one in the morning. Her mom has just returned home from a date and brought the man with her, so she wants her needy daughter to shut the fuck up and go to bed. This guy, very <laughs> assuming. Where's, where's where the bourbon? <laughs> yeah. Where's my bourbon? He took <sighs> yeah. it out. <laughs> it's like literally that guy. Right. As I said, though, it's a common theme in these movies that the characters have pre-existing relationships with Freddy. A little bit different from Jason Voorhees, where we pointed out that that one girl from 3 had an interaction with Jason, but typically he's meeting these people for the first time when he's killing them. Yeah. Whereas 
generally when we start a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, they've already been having the dreams. Right. We're not seeing their first one necessarily. I do think it's kind of funny in terms of an image just to see this disturbing house that Kristen has made. It's sort of a weird thing just to make for no reason. Yeah. After her mother returns home, Kristen falls asleep and dreams of a full-size version of the house she's made. A little girl sings the familiar Freddie song so we know we're in trouble. I think when I woke from this dream, the first thing I would do is destroy that little house. <laughs> I know. It doesn't seem pleasant. Obviously, it's supposed to be the Thompson house from the first one, which right. carries some kind of cosmic significance to both Nancy and Freddie. Freddie chases Kristen through the house, but then she wakes up in her bed. But it's not as safe as it seems because no, Freddie no. then attacks her again in her bathroom after she thinks she's already awoken making it look like she slit her own wrist in the real world. favorite tropes that's right but who is the dreamer this time it's Kristen, and it's a pretty fucking dark dream even if you take away the fact that she could actually be hurt or killed for real the little girl who's singing and is the one that she picks up when they go down into the boiler room next to the furnace she says this is where he takes us haunting and then there's all those skulls and bones it's really truly fucked up because we know that 
the character is sort of based off of a child molester mm-hmm. who also murders the children, and they sort of delete that out of the narrative for most of the franchise, the molesting part. But I think most people can do the math. I don't know that random men just kill children for no reason. There's usually a there's something more there, a darker component to it. Yeah. It's a lot to think about. It's incredible how this character and story evolved into this pop mainstream staple of the '80s. I know he's like this popular thing that kids like and that eventually starts as. making jokes. <laughs> Yeah, they really want you to think Freddy's like a happening guy and yeah. fun. <laughs> like, I, I mean, don't know. Not it's for nothing, people. Up. I mean, we're talking about at least the murder of children. At least. At, at a minimum, the murder <laughs> of children. Special effects creator Mark Showstrom created a desiccated little girl corpse, which Kristen would discover she was holding, but it was decided that the item was too grotesque, so you see a miniature skeleton instead, which is still kind of fucked up. Yeah. But from what I was reading, it seemed like the prop was too good. It was literally just too good to be used. Wow. Because they're like, this is too disturbing to see. Imagine being that prop guy. They're like, really? <laughs> I think that if you're ignoring two, which also takes place in the same house, if you're just sort of like forgetting that, though, and just making this like a, a Nancy story, I think having her house here at the beginning, it really brings the vibes. We're tying this together. I think the reason the sequel succeeds is that it does feel like a connective thing to the original film in an organic way that kind of makes sense. You can roll with it, and then it reaches a satisfying conclusion, which I don't think that every entry in these endless horror franchises actually ever really does. Just because the bad guy is vanquished or killed at the end doesn't mean that they're really all that satisfying. But this one feels complete. True. And then they ruin it. Yeah. Robert Englund is back as Freddy Krueger, the integral part of the character and franchise. New Line briefly considered cheaping out in part two and using a different actor for less money. Wow. But it was clear that that wouldn't work. Dream Warriors marks the first film where Mr. Krueger is referred to predominantly as Freddy. In the original film and the first sequel, he was still being called Fred most of the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. How weird is that? Jason getting his mask. Right. Yeah, nobody ever really thinks of him as Fred Krueger, but that's a lot of what they're calling him in the first two movies. Yeah, yeah. For one week during filming, Robert Englund was working 24 hours every day. By day, he was wrapping up filming on his television series Downtown, and then he would report to the Dream Warriors set at night. Believing her daughter to be suicidal, Kristen's mother admits her to Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital, where she is placed under the care of Dr. Neil Gordon, played by Craig Wasson. I'm not really uh, sure how to pronounce his last name. I know him from Body Double pretty much exclusively. I <laughs> yeah. I was watching it, and I'm like, that is the guy from Body Double, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sure he's in other things, but... I may have seen him in one other thing, but now I can't remember what that would be. But this is not the worst of these situations that you've seen. It's not very One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. There's definitely more warmth and care amongst the patients here. Yeah, the psychiatric hospitals have improved slightly, I guess, over the decades since Cuckoo's Nest. But these are specifically for younger patients. Correct. So there might be a little bit more gentleness. There's parents that are paying the bills. These aren't just the dregs of society that no one wants to deal with. At the hospital, Kristen fights the orderlies who try to sedate her because she fears falling asleep. On the news, we're hearing about teen suicides that seem to be common in the area 
One of the weirdest things in the movie is Lawrence Fishburne as Max. Yeah, really. One of uh, the orderlies. Still being billed as Larry Fishburne. Yeah. So he before he grew up and became Lawrence. Strange career trajectory, because you would think by this point he would be beyond being yeah. like the fifth or sixth build person in a horror sequel, but... I know, he was in Apocalypse now as like a kid. I know. I guess the 80s took a while, because I guess he was doing... Pee-wee's Playhouse, probably around the same Wild. time period, or a little ma- after this, maybe? Yeah. It just took a minute. I don't know. It's cool, though, seeing familiar faces. Patricia Arquette, right. guy from Body Double, returning Heather Langenkamp and John Saxon. Now you've got Lawrence Fishburne. You're like, this feels like a real movie. Absolutely, because <laughs> you know when you go back, for instance, when you go watch Friday the 13th Part 3, not a ton of recognizable faces in that one. How dare you? Final chapter had Crispin Glover and Corey Feldman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a new intern therapist on the scene able to fully relate to what young Kristen is experiencing. Yes, that's right. None other than Nancy fucking Thompson herself walks yeah. through the door, receiving a full hero's entrance, reciting a part of Freddie's nursery rhyme that Kristen is tearfully singing carries herself with a confidence too i think heather langenkamp returns figuring out both her and nancy's ages at the time is a little confusing she suffers from what many many other teenage slash young adult actors and actresses of the 80s were going through just look at judge reinhold oh yeah he's a teenager in fast times and then he's like a banker in gremlins and it feels like they're the same time (laughs) yeah and then after multiple Nightmare on Elm Street movies, Langenkamp plays a teenage daughter in just the 10 of us after this movie <laughs> for three seasons, which to me I think is only a show about a dad that's who's crazy. a basketball coach who has hot daughters, I think. Wow. I I I'm not even plot. Yeah, I'm not even familiar with it, but she does look older in this. Yeah, so the timeline is hard to figure out. She's actually not that old. It's not like she's 30 years old in real life and we have to retcon it because she was so much older than her character in 1984. No, she's really only in her early 20s here. She's not probably that much older than what they were saying her character was at the time back in 84. But at one point later in the film, Nancy says six years ago, referring to her encounters with Freddie. So that would obviously be double the amount of real years because 84 to 87 is three, but she Mm -hmm. says six. I don't know. It's hard to believe that she's this young adult intern therapist that's already being put in job situations with troubled teens. Yeah. Yeah, Because we just saw her as a teenager only a couple years earlier, but... And she was really able to, like, get past that traumatic experience (laughs) to the point where she's so comfortable. Well, she's an expert on nightmares and dreams. (laughs) That's true. It doesn't make sense, but it's not a big deal. It never bothers me. I just accept it. Moving on. She carries herself like she belongs, and I... Agreed. I, yeah. I'm on board for it. I know my own daughter. She's just trying to get some attention, that's all. And I'm not going to play one of her little games with her. Suicide attempt. They just brought her down from County General. What's her name? Kristen Parker. She was fine until we tried to stay her. Watch it. George, stitch yourself. <laughs> we want to help Dr. Gordon, I'm not going to hurt you. I want to help you. I want to help you. Back off, Max. Kristen. Put 
the scalpel down. Nobody's gonna hurt you. long and short of it is that we've collected some troubled teens and herded them into a facility where they are being treated for what is assumed to be mental illness combined with severe sleep issues. Dr. Gordon speaks of a collective delusion, a boogeyman. Of course, we as the audience already know that this new intern, initially not even wanted by Gordon, although it's funny how those complaints ceased once he got a look at her, is the most equipped to confront this so-called boogeyman. Early on, though, Nancy drops her purse, and we see she has a prescription for something called hypnosil. We don't know what that is yet. Yeah. Dr. Gordon spots a mysterious nun hanging around. Pretty obvious that she's going to be factoring in at some point. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the elements of the m- movie that I really enjoyed. What do you mean? Her presence and yeah, like what she brings to it. Yeah, well, that's another thing that... I'll probably rant about later yeah, yeah. that they undo in the other movies. I don't know why. This is such a great movie for building the lore of this character, and I usually hate that kind of shit when it doesn't work, but this works. This adds to what we already right. knew in a cool way. Well, whatever. I guess they had to come up with reasons to keep making new ones, so in order to do that, they just rewrote everything, rewrote the origin of Freddy, rewrote the ending of Freddy, rewrote the mission of Freddy the way he talked to make him way more comedic, whatever. <laughs> but then you're left with, well, what was the deal then? There is no deal. Right. The, the deal is money that they can make yeah. at the box office. <laughs> Max introduces Nancy to the rest of Dr. Gordon's patients, our little dream warriors, if you will. We have Philip, played by Bradley Gregg, a habitual sleepwalker. Kincaid, played by Ken Sagos, a tough kid prone to violence. Jennifer played by Penelope Sudro, a hopeful television actress who burns herself with cigarettes. Will, played by Ira Hayden, confined to a wheelchair due to a prior suicide attempt. Taryn, played by Jennifer Rubin, a recovering drug addict. Jennifer Rubin is notable for her performance in a film that came out the next year called Bad Dreams, Oh, which Matt probably remembers as being one of the trailers on the cemetery man dvd oh (laughs) i do remember the trailers but i don't specifically remember bad dreams well there was only two there was the hospital one with shatner and then there was the other one with rutger howard okay yeah and it's a total nightmare on elm street ripoff right i think you can get that from the title bad dreams (laughs) and they take one of the girls joey played by rodney eastman the youngest among them and too traumatized to speak joey's whole thing is that he's horny which i can relate to (laughs) he's definitely interested in marcy the nurse which will come up later he needed to be hospitalized for this (laughs) just incessant horniness (laughs) it was the 80s i can appreciate Kristen's less than zero style mother washing her hands of it not wanting to deal with it yep i've got suitors that i've got to tend to in the evening hours dumping her daughter off here and just demanding that they deal with the situation fix this please I thought it was a really cool moment, too, when Nancy goes to see 
Kristen's mom, so she's in Kristen's house, and she gets to see the art project that is her own infamous childhood home. That's kind of a cool moment, too, to gauge Nancy's reaction to seeing it. Right. Like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Although I guess when she heard her singing that song, she knew there was going to be a connection here. Oh, yeah. Using a very primitive computer, Dr. Gordon learns all about hypnoseal, which is an experimental drug that suppresses dreams, Mm. which is a cool thing to invent for the purposes of this movie. They came up with good ideas about what this world would be like. Doesn't that seem like it'd have to cause like brain damage or something? (laughs) Well, yeah. And Dr. Gordon does sort of touch on that a little bit about the potential for problems that if you don't dream like it can affect your mental stability and stuff like that Yikes. almost immediately freddie attacks Kristen in her dream once again luring her into a life-size version of her nightmare house this sequence is awesome and it highlights the ingenuity possible in this franchise in my opinion Kristen comes across a classic nightmarish image of a roasted pig on a table and then it comes to life and growls at her. They actually roasted a pig, let it spoil, and prop guys puppeted it from beneath. The poor guy who was actually behind the camera, cinematographer Roy H. Wagner, claims the pig stench was so overwhelming he can still smell it to this day. Wow. Kristen cries out in her dream for Nancy and is able to unwittingly pull Nancy into her dream as she's being devoured by a giant Freddy snake. And this was causing some questions for me because... I've known the rules to be if you are injured in some way in the dream. Yeah, but he's eating her like a snake would eat her, which yeah. is that he's swallowing her. Right, So that's there's not going to be teeth marks necessarily. Yeah. You're thinking he's like chewing her. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're just replicating a snake devouring. That way they can work a- around it. Yeah, that's true. Okay. It checks out. Nancy fights off the Freddy snake who recognizes her. And both she and Kristen are able to escape. Yep, and Nancy's like, okay, it's on. All of these years later, I still think this looks really cool. Me too. And it's really effective. There's a couple things in this movie, and I'll mention it when we get to another one, but there's just things in this movie that is the first stuff that I think about when I think of Freddy Krueger or A Nightmare on Elm Street. And the Freddy Snake is definitely one of them. The original Freddy Snake unintentionally came out looking too phallic. The crew only had one hour to film the scene, so they didn't have enough time to paint it. So it was covered in a green goo substance to overcome the pinkish hue. Hmm. That would have been actually kind of fucked up if it looked like a giant penis was eating her. The scene involving the Freddy Snake attempting to swallow Kristen was also filmed backwards and then played in reverse. Due to the gums on the puppet being too flexible and were folding over themselves. That's stuff that I got to give filmmakers credit for, because I'd I'd be like, how do you make that work? (laughs) Oh, they know all the tricks. That's right. We haven't pointed it out yet, but I think it needs mentioned. Nancy's rogue hair. Yeah. Left over from the ridge where she got the gray streak or the white streak. It still looks awesome. I know. She's just like so badass. I'm just like such a Nancy fan. No, I know. And I don't know if it's that, well, I've, I've been here before attitude, but you really believe that she is ready to combat Freddy Krueger in a way that almost no one else Yeah, you feel that way about. Kristen shares with Nancy her history of pulling people into dreams. It was something that she was able to do when she was little. This is a special power. 
this could come up huge, obviously, in potential future battles. Yeah. And Nancy confirms that Freddy is, in fact, real, and she believes Kristen, and she knows all about it. The movie is punctuated by these group sessions that allow us a little bit of personality time yeah. with the rest of our, our crew. Get some character development with our dream warriors here. Priscilla Pointer plays Dr. Elizabeth Sims. Matt, you would know her as Mrs. Beaumont in Blue Velvet. Oh, yeah. She's our requisite skeptic. Yeah. Because, obviously, Dr. Gordon is now in love, so he's just going to go with whatever Nancy says. So we have to have someone else step up and be like, well, this is fucking ridiculous. Exactly. What are you talking about? (laughs) It really is a jam-packed 96-minute runtime. They get so much in here. Because even without actually having any scenes, you do sense the potential romance developing between Nancy and Dr. Gordon. I know that they filmed a kiss that is not in the movie. You don't even need it. You get it. You already kind of get it without any of those scenes. She also fills us in, Nancy does, on what's become of the Thompson clan since the original film. Despite that weird sequence at the end of the movie, her mother was actually killed. Her dad has sort of drifted out of her life. and He's found some cool spots to hang out at. Yeah, has sort of turned to alcohol to numb the pain. Nancy wants the teens on Hypnoseal, which would suppress their dreams, while the medical professionals try to control the situation, but this is seen as extreme. Hypnoseal is still considered experimental, but Dr. Gordon and the others don't understand what Nancy already knows. These kids are in real physical danger from their dreams. I don't want to necessarily repeat everything that I know we covered when we did the original, but it's such a great concept of an inescapable terror. You can't get away from it. Eventually, you're going to fall asleep. Uh, Well, that bit that carries over movie to movie of the people trying to fight falling asleep, it always hits for me. Like I'm always able to feel that. That's me watching you now. Yeah, right. Basically, anytime we record. Yeah. I'm wondering, is he going to say anything? I'm like getting the the Folgers, the Diet Cokes. (laughs) I know. I think you need to see a specialist. It's not normal. (laughs) First up is Philip, he of sleepwalking fame. In this film, Freddy targets his victims by exploiting a specific fear, interest, character trait, weakness, whatever, which makes each kill sequence somewhat unique. This continues through a lot of the remainder of the franchise. Sometimes it works out pretty cool. Sometimes it doesn't really make sense, like in some of the later films where he's killing people based on things that they're obsessed with and love. Yeah, I don't really know why that's a nightmare for them, but what? Like a guy who's obsessed with video games in one of the last entries of the series, and then his nightmare sequence is in a video game. Yeah, it stinks. Yeah, but this, I feel like for Philip, there's some Hellraiser vibes with his. Yeah. Death sequence. It is pretty gnarly. Philip's into puppets, so Freddy plays evil puppeteer, controlling Philip by way of severed tendons like a macabre marionette, eventually tossing him off of a rooftop, making it look like a suicide. When the clay puppet's face turns into Freddy's, special effects man Doug Beswick used stop-motion animation. Filming began with a clay Freddy face that was made plainer in each frame, The result was then run backward, and that is what appears in the final cut of the film. But they really know how to work in character development and character traits because all in this sequence is that other orderly offering Taryn drugs. That's right. So you get a better sense of that's her weakness, 
that's going to come up for her. The but guy, it's all done quickly, effectively. The guy that's the douchey orderly. Yeah, not the cool guy like right. Max. Dr. Sims refers to what happens to Philip as a sleepwalking accident, nothing more. <laughs> Cue Richard okay. Dreyfus from Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> this was no sleepwalking accident. <laughs> this was a Freddy attack. I did notice that in the intervening years between now and then that a lot of changes in approaching mental illness, especially in teenagers, would be evident, I think. Uh, I'd say so. They're referring to Philip's suicide as cowardly and weak. The adults, the doctors are saying that to a lot of other potentially suicidal people. I just don't think that people are saying that now. No, no, but I still feel like we grew up in an era where that was still commonly... Yeah, it's a total lack of sympathy. I'm not saying that Dr. Gordon and Dr. Sims need to believe these kids as much as Nancy, because why would you? Right. It's so crazy. But at the same time, they're so cold and disproportionately callous here for no, some I know. reason. I don't know why. Sims is talking about enforced sedation, which freaks everybody out. Everyone's fucking losing it. But Gordon okays hypnoseal against Sims' judgment. Sims doesn't want to have any responsibility for it, but Gordon wants to go through with it. But it's not a drug that people just have on hand at all times, so there's going to have to be a little bit of a gap before they get it. Max allows Jennifer to stay up to watch TV, but she's alone, she's vulnerable, and folks, she's sleepy. Oh, no. (laughs) Always a recipe for disaster. Girl, what are you doing? Watching TV. I can see that. Why don't you read a book? You watch too much damn TV. Research. Oh, right. You're going to be a TV star. Wait and see. Yeah, well, if Sims catches you here after lights out, she's going to cheat my ass. I got to stay on Max. Jennifer. Just tonight. Please. I can't handle the nightmare. Not after Philip. Not tonight. Okay, but I never saw you. Thanks, Max.
Jennifer. Your big breaking TV. Stop the front time, bitch. In one of the more iconic kills in the series, Freddy dispatches of the would-be TV star Jennifer by smashing her head into the mounted television on the wall. And for our younger listeners, we're talking about an old-school TV oh, mounted yeah. to the wall, was not a flat screen. <laughs> Even that remote that she was using was huge, like gigantic. Yeah. It was like so thick. For the dream sequence in which a Dick Cavett interview is interrupted by Freddy Krueger, Sally Kellerman was originally in the script as the guest, but Cavett was then allowed to pick the person he'd be interviewing. He picked Zsa Zsa Gabor because he thought she was the dumbest person he'd ever met in his <laughs> life, and he'd never have her on his show in real life. So if there was one person he'd want to see killed by Freddy, it would be her. Wild. I'm sure they didn't tell her that when they were. No, I don't even know if she her. knew she was on a movie. Yeah. <laughs> She seemed completely caught off guard. But I love that part. I think it's so awesome because it does just seem like she's watching late night television interview and then all of a sudden the person is murdered by Freddy Krueger. It's something that they've redone in other horror films, even as recently as the new It. Yeah. And they never quite pull it off as seamlessly as this. This really does feel kind of unexpected. Yeah. Dick Cavett and Zsa Zsa Gabor are only on screen for 30 seconds. On the advance released posters, only Dick Cavett was credited because it was unsure who his guest would be in the scene. By the time the film was released, Gabor had been picked by Cavett for the scene. The scene had been filmed, and Gabor's and Cavett's names appeared on the one-sheet poster, which is wild because they're only in it for 30 seconds. I know. It's funny when you see their names in the opening credits because not seeing this before, I'm like, Zsa Gabor? (laughs) That is wild that she's in this movie. And then like, when you see the context of, yeah. What it is, it makes more sense. But at first, I didn't know what she was going to pop up as. <laughs> well, they probably got like a little bit more money in terms of residuals by having their names in the front credits, yeah. which is probably why they agreed to do it, I would imagine. Later in the series, you get Roseanne and Tom Arnold. I don't think they're playing themselves, but you get random cameos yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. It's kind of stupid. She also goes through Critters, which is another New Line cinema movie. And then she very quickly goes past a movie called Alone in the Dark starring Donald Pleasance, which is kind of weird to see Donald Pleasance in a nightmare movie, even if it's just for a flash. Yeah. And that film was directed by Jack Shoulder, who also directed A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. So kind of weird before she eventually gets to the Dick Cavett show. According to Robert Englund, all of Gabor's reactions and dialogue were completely improvised. Miss Gabor, who was probably just grateful to be asked to appear in a movie again, apparently didn't read the script or bother to do any research on the nightmare flicks. I guess her agent told her, I have a job for you. And all she said was, great, what time should I show up to think? (laughs) Robert Englund's kind of cheesy. Yeah. Not realizing that she was about to throw down with a burnt to a crisp serial killer during the fake talk show where she's interviewed by Dick Cavett, all of her reactions seen on the film were 100% genuine. She didn't know who the fuck Freddy was, so when I jumped out, she had a mild freak out. England did improvise quite a few of Kruger's one-liners, but the best-known example happened in the scene where Freddy emerged from the television set and killed Jennifer by smashing her head into it. For this scene, his line in the script was, This is it, Jennifer, your big break on TV. England said this line for the first two takes, but on the third take, 
When Chuck Russell went for an alternate angled shot, England changed it to Welcome to Prime Time, Bitch. Russell couldn't decide which version to use, so he edited the two together. The different camera angle made it an easy edit, and it became probably Freddie's defining one-liner. And it is one of the more famous elements of this movie, Welcome to Prime Time, Bitch. Yeah, yeah. That's great. (laughs) Even though I love this movie, and I think it's probably the best written of the sequels, if not definitely the best written, this did begin the phase of the character where he became using the word bitch constantly. I think he probably uses it in two as well, but it just becomes more and more comedic. Yeah, just becomes part of his catchphrases. I guess they probably want to soften it up a little bit because I think anytime Craven did passes on these scripts, especially with the first one and then the first version of this one, it's always meaner and nastier where he would probably be dropping C-bombs. Well, I don't think that Craven was setting out to make something goofy initially. No, I don't think he thought the comedic element was a good idea. Two more dead while under the care of Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital. Clearly, there is a problem. The body count does start piling up like pretty quick. And the excuse of suicides looks a lot flimsier after what happened to Jennifer. Yeah. That lasting image of her off the ground with her head jammed into a TV in the air. (laughs) What a suicide. Dr. Gordon encounters Sister Mary Helena at Jennifer's funeral the second time he spotted this nun dressed all in white who also has a strange habit of disappearing. Pun kind of intended. Mm. I didn't realize after the fact. I was like, oh, nuns wear habits. Okay. Oh, yeah. I think it's this funeral that like Nancy's outfit really caught my eye. Yeah, I was getting there. Okay. Well, first, <laughs> Sister Mary Helena says only one thing can save the children. The unquiet spirit must be laid to rest. Right. So the gauntlet is being laid down. If you're paying attention, you're kind of getting where this movie's going to go. Yeah, and this is the coolest backstory of Freddy Krueger that I could. Yeah. As this starts to unravel more and more. But even at this point, she's just introducing the fact that some weird ungodly creatures well we know from the first movie what happened to fred krueger and so now we're going back and thinking oh yeah however they killed him whatever they did to his remains it probably wasn't like a regular burial so you can start doing a little bit of the piece working you know putting the pieces together yourself thinking okay yeah this all makes sense like i get it as you alluded to nancy's outfit at the funeral is truly wild i described it as a cross between stevie nicks and annie oakley (laughs) She seems like she's wearing like a cowboy hat yeah, or really. something. <laughs> Just absolutely insane. <laughs> insane. I wish that someone would wear this to my funeral. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Nancy and Dr. Gordon are sharing some romantic candlelit dinners. Love it. Obviously, we know where this is going. No workplace relationship weirdness going on, I guess. He's also 10 years older than yeah. her, but it was a different time. Right. Where that was just the move. <laughs> Step one. Be 10 years older. (laughs) But it's time for her to come clean. First, Dr. Gordon hears the truth, and then we'll take it over to group. No more beating around the bush. We know what the fuck's going on. Right. Nancy's got to take charge. In the next group session, Nancy reveals to the remaining patients that they are, quote, the last of the Elm Street kids, the only surviving children of those who banded together Hmm. and burned that old child-killing creep Fred Krueger to death many years ago. Imagine the true crime podcasts about Fred Krueger. Well, and that like these remaining people all ended up as suicidal. 
mental. Well, well they have all have the problems because of Freddy. Well, yeah, and that's their connection. And Although all, how they don't all know each other already is kind of strange. That part is weird, especially since they all go to the same school in part four. Mm-hmm. But whatever. I guess I could see that maybe their parents had moved them apart from each other, so they're not all living on the same street yeah. or something, and they've kind of spread out to distance themselves from the guilt of this crime that all these parents evidently committed. I don't know. Understanding the mythology is a little tricky, especially once you get past this movie and then they start changing things. But just to this point, how many kids did Kruger actually kill when he was alive? I don't know. How many adults participated in his murder? Seemingly a lot. Right. Was the town at large involved as well? We know that Nancy's father was a policeman, but was the police in general involved? Or was it just one policeman? Were politicians involved? How deep does this go? It seems like a pretty big conspiracy because a lot of people would have to have kept this a secret. But we know that Kristen is going to be the key. Pulling people into her dreams is a big deal. It seems like a pretty easy way to fight off a dream demon and it's it also a, a, a pretty early indicator of what you would see in inception <laughs> for sure some of these a, scenes definitely a handy skill to have both nancy and dr gordon encourage the teens to try group hypnosis so that they can experience a shared dream and discover their dream powers before they even realize they are successful joey wanders away after being lured by a beautiful nurse he's been crushing on mm-hmm. marcy he should have had some indication that this wasn't real. Yeah. It's a little too good to be true <laughs> yeah. there, Joey. You haven't even said anything. Yeah. <laughs> She's just luring you over. It's like Mary Kay Letourneau. In the meantime, the other kids realize their group dreaming a la Inception and discover their own unique dream powers. Neil, let's just try one more time. If it doesn't work, I promise I'll... We're here. We're here. We're in the dream. Well, no, we're not. We're still here in the group. In my dreams, I can walk. My legs are strong. In my dreams, I am the wizard master. Kristen, what can you do in your dream? A perfect score. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> Fucking A dig this. Kincaid, please. That's very unnerving. Hey, check out Taryn. In my dreams, I'm beautiful. And bad. I have mixed feelings about this. It's a little corny. Which piece? The dream powers element. Oh, yeah. That they all have to unlock these special dream powers. I guess that's what makes them dream warriors, but I don't even know if you need to go that far. I think just them teaming up and fighting Freddy in dreams is enough. Yeah. Because some of the dream powers are kind of silly and feel crowbarred into it for no reason. Like, they don't really accomplish much. No, I know. But also hilarious that the person leading this hypnosis session also falls asleep. 
<laughs> yeah, there's no one outside the dream yeah. to monitor what's going on. <laughs> you have Will, who in his dream can walk, and he's also a wizard master. I would get rid of the wizard stuff altogether. It's not really that crucial to anything. I would just say that part of his thing is when he dreams, he can walk. I think you can just establish that in one sentence and keep that the same. Yep. Kristen's, in addition to being able to pull people into her dreams, is gymnast, question mark? Yeah, she does all the flippy <laughs> shit. <laughs> I know. It was like, is this something? I don't know. Kincaid, strength, question mark? Is that all? Tough guy, yeah. I don't know. Tough guy. <laughs> he seems equally as tough in the real world. Well, he can break that chair easier in the dream. That's true. But even when they get into the climactic moments, I don't think his power ever really comes up, does it? No. Taryn, what is her power exactly? Outfit. Mohawks and switchblades? <laughs> this must be just what her life was before. Cosplaying. Yeah. In my dreams, I'm beautiful and bad. <laughs> it's a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, it should be obvious to Joey that this is not reality. When the nurse starts full-on seducing him, it turns out she's actually Freddy Krueger. Tongue-tied! <laughs> it's actually pretty cool. It's a hot nurse making out with him. And then all of a sudden, her tongues start yeah, disconnecting, and they're used to tie his hands and feet to the bed frame. Which is kind of gross. Essentially, the end result is that Freddy has abducted Joey, leaving him comatose in the real world, but the visual representation is pretty cool. He's suspended over an endless pit to hell, tied to the bed frame with those gross tongues. That is a rough existence. According to producer Sarah Risher, the role that the producers spent the most time interviewing and auditioning was Marcy, the nurse, played by Stacy Alden, who seemingly seduces Joey in his dream but turns out to be Freddy. Nurse Marcy, while seducing Joey, was originally supposed to turn into a, quote, she-Freddy, with Alden wearing Freddy's mask. Roy H. Wagner had second thoughts about this after seeing how she-Freddy looked like in practice, stating that, quote, Freddy with breasts, it was too off-kilter. <laughs> the concept of she-Freddy was substituted with having the nurse shoot prehensile tongues at Joey to trap him and then be switched with England Freddy. I think that's fine. I think they landed in a good spot. Yeah, although if they would have had the budget, yeah. pulling off the She-Freddy could have been really fucked up and wild, right. especially if she continued to be topless, which she is in the scene. Mm -hmm. That could have been really cool. But I just don't know that they had the budget for these kind of things. Yeah. I think the original script that they were wanting to shoot was a $20 million script. Okay. And they were basically told... No, that's not how this is going <laughs> to yeah. work. That's got to be way less. Take some of that stuff out of there. As a result of what happened to Joey, both Dr. Gordon and Nancy are relieved of duty. That night, leaving the facility with all his shit packed and ready to go, Dr. Gordon once again encounters Sister Mary Helena. This time she appears high up in the bell tower where Philip fell to his death. Gordon pursues and she finally tells her tale. According to Sister Mary Helena, Freddy is the son of a young woman on the hospital staff who was accidentally locked in a room with hundreds of mental patients who raped her continually. Good the Lord. bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Yeah, it is a disturbing tale. As dark as it gets. Yeah, which is weird, again, that this character kind of became a pop icon yeah. of the 80s, but 
is really dark and twisted I guess and fucked maybe up. At some point, they were like, "We got to pull back on this. We've gone the comedic route. This cannot continue to be his backstory." Although it's always dark, no matter what it is. It always is about killing kids. Yeah, but yeah. This does seem to be next level right. in a way. But that's the thing. It, it's more of a tie-in with like demonic, in that obviously having the Joey character stranded over hell. That all seems to tie back in. Right. Yeah, and it it accomplishes something pretty cool where it gives you an equally interesting backstory to what is established in the original without changing anything from the original, but just adding to it. In the original, the backstory is this man is a child murderer. All of these parents who have been affected because he gets off on a technicality rise up and kill the man in a fire, but then he comes back and haunts them in their yeah. children's dreams. Okay, that's pretty fucking badass. Let's add on a whole other level of who that guy was. How did he become the child killer? Right, right. So he was almost a demon man to begin with. Yep. And then these parents fucked with this demon man. Rightfully so. He was murdering their kids, but you know they didn't know what they were getting themselves into. And now we have this mess. <laughs> and only Nancy and her rogue hair can fix. That's right. Sister Mary Helena tells Dr. Gordon, you must find the remains and bury him on hallowed ground. The only way to finally stop this monster is to lay them bones to rest. There's a message cut into Joey's abdomen for Nancy. Come and get him, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) The scenes sometimes feel a little disjointed and out of order because Sims freaks out about the kids being on Hypnosil, and yet they were all able to dream together. Right. So I don't feel like the hypnosil had arrived yet, and yet that's why Dr. Gordon and Nancy get fired. But they were all just dreaming together, so I don't know how they were suppressing dreams. And then Nancy gets fired, and then she's sitting bedside with Joey when this message appears on his stomach. This is after they were fired. The scenes are a little... Well, she does linger for a while. (laughs) She's just lingering. She keeps trying to like get in to see the patients. Well, no, she leaves, and then she comes back to try to get in later. After Dr. Gordon tells Nancy what they must do, she realizes that she knows the one man who can help them. She takes Gordon to find her father, Donald Thompson, John Saxton returning. A hell of a joint that he's hanging out in. Little Nemo's. Yeah. I was like, this looks like my kind of spot. Drunk and washed out at a local watering hole. You get the sense that the intervening years haven't been too kind to Officer Thompson, nor have they been too kind to the relationship he has with his daughter. No, it's been hard living. But look, you can understand the toll this takes. You committed a murder. You covered it up. The guy you murdered came back. He killed your wife. He's responsible for killing countless teens and children. It's a lot. There's not enough booze in the world. They ask where Freddy's bones are hidden, but he's uncooperative. The one thing I liked about Little Nemo's, other than just the general Vibe. look of it, yeah. no TVs on. I know. No real jukebox playing. Straight to business here, folks. A sad, silent, but also still somewhat crowded bar. A lot of people yeah. on the edge. A little too familiar for me. little peek at where it's all <laughs> heading. Taryn pages Dr. Gordon to tell him that Kristen is being sedated and put in the quiet room for the night, which makes Nancy rush off. Dr. Gordon stays behind to try and convince Donald to help them. Thankfully, Dr. Gordon decides to play it tough, which is kind of weird. It doesn't really seem like he would be the kind of guy to get tough with an old grizzled cop. Yeah, I'm not buying the toughness element. But it works. 
While Donald takes Dr. Gordon to an auto-salvaged junkyard to find Freddy's remains, Nancy reunites with Taryn, Will, and Kincaid in order to once again engage in group hypnosis to save Joey and Kristen. Straight talk only in here. That's right. <laughs> I like how they try to make that a thing. Yeah. <laughs> One of the many cringe things people were saying in the 80s, like <laughs> things like straight talk. <laughs> Nancy gives them all a choice, but they all want to do it. They all want to go through with it. As Kincaid puts it, let's go kick the motherfucker's ass all over Dreamland. Absolutely. Right away... They get with Kristen in the quiet room, but it's a dream, so Freddy has free reign, and everyone is eventually separated. Yeah, talking about plans going horribly awry right from the get-go. Yeah, well, they needed to get her first. Yeah, I know. But, but they like, hey, guys, let's make a pact that no matter what, we stick together. Immediately, they're all separated. <laughs> Run! Yeah. Nancy, <laughs> I knew you'd come. You don't think we let you go in alone, do you? No way. We're a team. Yeah. Listen, everybody. Joey needs us. I can feel him. Where is he? How do we find him, Kristen? Awful dream. Lane, where do you keep the bourbon? I'll be right down. Chris, I've got a guest. Please, Mom, I just don't want to be alone. I said, where's the fucking bourbon? You should listen to your mother. God damn it, Kristen, you ruin everything. Every time I bring a man home, you spoil it. You know what your shrink says? You're just trying to get a little attention. Kristen ends up back at the beginning of the film, making her house model and interacting with her mother. It's exactly the same, except it turns into a nightmare, and Freddie beheads Kristen's mom brutally, but then her severed head keeps yelling at Kristen. So another pretty cool and iconic sequence here that in 1987, I, I got to say, it's got to be still pretty cool and inventive and shocking. I'd say to have so. a severed head still yelling. 
There weren't a ton of movies no, capable I think it looks pretty of pulling good. this shit off yeah. yet. Yeah, it's a pretty cool moment. Kristen's mother, though, Elaine Parker, is actually in part four. So this is definitely 100% not reality. And it's a projection of Kristen's mother that only exists in Kristen's mind. And she's the only one in danger in this moment. Okay. Good to know. Not super crucial, but it's just weird. Well, yeah, I would have walked away thinking that she was separately killed. I yeah, think. this counts as her being killed. Because yeah. Well, it goes back to that Friday the 13th thing with right. the dreams at the end of those movies where they kind of still count even though they're yeah. dreams. Yeah. In all fairness, the super gymnastics are actually used. They're put That's to true. some use here. Yeah. There's a lot of flipping going She's on. She's very acrobatic. Taryn cannot escape Freddy, though, as easily as Kristen evidently can. I guess being beautiful and bad isn't as useful in combating the boogeyman as gymnastics yeah. are. Come up with a better power. Switchblades. Yeah. <laughs> Her kill scene, it really is one visually interesting set piece right after another. It's like rough to wrap your head around. It's as 80s as it gets. Yeah. This whole look. The scenery around Taryn shifts from the interior of Kristen's paper mache house to an old school alleyway leading to a bar that looks like it could only exist in 1987. In just New York City. right yeah. out of 87. Taryn dressed in leather and spikes, the big mohawk, the switchblades. Imagine being this person and getting ready to go out at night, and this is what it entails. I've been that person. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen you dress like this. Her death is also among the top Freddy kills, in my opinion, just due to how dark it feels. It may not be as inventive as the snake, even though that's not actually a kill, but it's just very mean-spirited and dark in a way that I think they would be too afraid to go this this route with it now, even though that's like what you want from your fucked-up serial killer. I know. It is rough, though. It's just rough to wrap your head around. <laughs> These tract wounds opening themselves up. Yeah. Thirsty for the drugs. Taryn is the drug addict, so... Freddie says, why should we fight? Let's get high. His fingers turn into needles. Syringes. The syringes, the syringe fingers. The injection spots on Taryn's arm opening up like fucked up hungry mouths. Yeah. Begging for drugs. And when he injects her with the fingers, that's what kills her. So you're not really sure exactly. Does he have real drugs in there or just neon green goo? <laughs> <laughs> Originally, Taryn's character's head was to explode after being injected with Freddy's syringes, but it looked too fake. I think it's just sort of sad. Your death in a dream world is still a drug overdose. Well, Jennifer Rubin, for her part in the Never Sleep Again documentary, which much like Crystal Lake Memories is a five-hour-plus-long <laughs> yeah. documentary about every entry, she talks about how people have come up to her and written letters to her saying that they got off drugs because of this scene oh cool so it did have a little bit of positive energy out there into the world and i kind of believe it even though when i first read it i was like that sounds like bullshit but when i watched the scene again i was like you know maybe we have jaded 2023 eyes we've totally. seen cgi and all kinds of special effects i bet there were people in the 80s that were like this is fucked up man yeah, it's yeah. fucked up like, it looked real to them. I know it doesn't look real, but it's still, of all the things, this probably, like, shook me the most of anything in this movie. Okay.
Oh, Darren. Look familiar. Okay, asshole. Let's dance. <laughs> <laughs> the next to bite it since it's dreamland he can walk now but freddy attacks him with an iron maiden style wheelchair will transforms into a wizard it's pretty hokey but i get the idea i get what they were going for in the franchise i don't know that it always worked out granted they thought this was going to be the last one so i don't know that they were thinking about the future necessarily but going into this whole thing where we're making the characters unique by their character traits meaning oh, this person likes wizards and Dungeons and Dragons. You don't need to spend as much time thinking about how to develop their character because you just instantly have an association now, and then you use that as their dream sequence or their death. And they repeat that a lot through the rest of the franchise. I just think that this kind of looks stupid in this movie. He turns into a wizard for a few seconds. I know. And it has no payoff, really. I guess it's all just payoff a stupid joke. Will's wizard attack is very similar to the Emperor's from Star Wars, visually at least. Yeah. However, it doesn't seem to do anything, and Freddy kills him immediately. What, he says, like, I don't believe in fairy tales or something like that? Yeah. Even though, like, I don't like it, I think that if you're going to do it, I think his power should at least injure Freddy a little Agreed. bit. Because then you just yeah. make him look like an idiot. Right. Like, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> you stupid horse's ass. Yeah. We're fucking around. Come up, again, come up with a better power. Nancy finds Kristen, and then together they find Kincaid. Notice when Kincaid asks about Joey, no one mentions Taryn and Will, even though how would they know that Freddy already killed them? Oh, I know. They just never are mentioned again. Yeah. We just know Freddy killed them. Yep. <laughs> Freddy provides them with a magical door hovering in the center of the room. The doorway leads from a bedroom in Kristen's paper mache dream house down to Freddy's famous boiler room. Meanwhile, as that's happening, Donald and Dr. Gordon come to where Freddy's remains have been stashed among the tangled skeletons of a thousand junked cars in the trunk of a vintage Cadillac half buried under a half dozen vehicles. I was wondering why this car, a Cadillac, it's the one that stands out the most. If someone was to be wandering through this junkyard, wouldn't this be one of the cars they may try to pick stuff off of? You would think. It's a little too noticeable. Yeah. Not inconspicuous. Uh, it was a little unnerving to see Gordon prying in there with a shovel, too. Didn't you feel like he could pull the whole fucking pile of cars down on top of himself by <laughs> yeah. prying in there with a shovel? <laughs> it's not the most practical junkyard I've ever seen. I got a little bit of a Pet cemetery vibe whenever 
Officer Thompson lights up a cigarette and oh, he yeah. basically is making him do it. It's sort of like Judd once <laughs> yeah. he brings Lewis up there to bury the cat. Yeah. Here, dig a hole. You got to bury your own. Yeah. I guess you have to keep it in perspective, though. This man that they're finding the bones of, he did murder one of Donald's children. Now, the movie does a weird thing, and I'm talking about the original, where they never really actually say that because that scene is cut from the movie which is Nancy learns that she had a sibling that she never knew about that right. got killed by Freddy because that's why these parents did that in the first place. It's the logical next step that they yep. never actually come out and say, which is, oh, well, all of the kids affected then had siblings that were killed. So that moment has to be hanging heavy. If you're thinking, okay, this is a real thing that's happening. Well, this man murdered or helped murder the guy who killed one of his children, and now he's there. Like, okay, yeah, we got to find this guy's bones. It's so <laughs> weird. Yeah, I know. Back in the boiler room, it's a wild scene. Joey is hanging over the pit to hell. A raging inferno is brewing in the furnace. <laughs> Just not Just, a great place. No, too much fire for me. The trio battle Kruger, but he has become extra powerful from the souls he has absorbed. Again, this is awesome. His stomach with all of the faces of the dead people that he's killed trying to get out as if they're in hell. That plus the Freddy snake, man. These are like the things that yeah. just freaked me out and stuck in my head because they're so interesting looking and unique to this particular franchise. There's nothing like that, really. No, I know. Even doing effects like this. Yeah. You just can't picture somebody trying to do something like this. It might be a little early to go into this whole rant, but I do just think that because of how stupid the franchise becomes at a certain point, they really just waste what is kind of a cool character and cool idea. Mm -hmm. And it never really develops as far as I think it could have gone. Even though they do come up with inventive kills and creative stuff, pretty much in all of the movies, no matter how terrible they get. But the stories were just never that interesting at a certain point. I don't know. But just as Freddy is about to kill Kincaid, he can sense his remains have been found and are in motion, so Freddy vanishes from the dream altogether. In the real world, as Donald and Dr. Gordon dig a hole in the junkyard to try and bury Freddy for good, the junked cars start coming to life. That looked really cool, too. I think so. They're running out of time. Freddy appropriates his own skeleton and kills Donald before incapacitating Gordon. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed in these two. Yeah. Not a great showing against the skeleton. I totally get bringing back Nancy's dad to kill him off. Yeah. That seems like as soon as he's on screen, you know that he's got to be sacrificed. (laughs) So I'm okay with it. But I think that you could have done a little bit more with his character, have him have maybe a little bit more interaction with Nancy. I know they do the fake out in a minute. Yeah. I don't know. It felt a little lacking there. Once Freddy has become the skeleton, it turns into the Ray Harryhausen stop-motion effect, which is wild. It stands out for being so unexpected and different from what you would think would be in a movie like this. Where you're like, what the fuck? It's like Jason and the Argonauts now? Right. Like, what is going on? Although, I guess to further your point, watching the real grown men lose so easily to the stop-motion skeleton requires a slight suspension of disbelief yeah i know because they seem so much bigger than the skeleton yeah, too just like don't even really try any moves <laughs> stand there and get hit in the face with a shovel <laughs> what moves a ddt yeah i don't know side suplex put him in a headlock or something the scene in which 
Dr. Gordon is thrown into the grave and partially buried by the skeleton of Freddy is a tribute to Body Double, in which Wasson's character is similarly buried alive. At this point, Freddy is slip-sliding back and forth between reality and the dream world like it's nothing. Leaving the job only 75% done, though, Freddy returns to the dream world and attacks the dream warriors who have now rescued Joey. This is the big Hall of Mirrors bit, which is pretty cool and an inventive way to answer a question that I was getting in my own head with, which was, can Freddy be two places at once? Because he's going back and forth between the real world and the dream world. So clearly there's a delineation between the real world and the dream world. But within a dream, when they split up, I was wondering if it's possible for him to be two places at once. And I don't think it is. It doesn't seem that way. So the mirrors thing is like a cool answer to that. How do you get him in multiple places? Yeah, I know. Why doesn't he spend more time in the real world if he can be there? Well, he can't. Except he was able to jump into that skeleton. Yeah. Maybe he didn't know where it was either. Well, that's true. One of the things that Craven hated so much about A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, is that the climax of the movie is basically Freddy jumping into the real world. And it starts to seem silly. Yeah. He's running around. He's not that much bigger than the kids. So he looks kind of goofy. They beat him up. They give him a wedgie. It's yeah. at a pool party, too. It's very similar to Scream, the big yeah. party at the end. Although Craven didn't have anything to do with Freddy's Revenge. I don't know. The whole thing about when he can come into the real world and not is always a big point of contention. I yeah. think that they've bought themselves a little leeway with the skeleton move. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like he's fully Freddy no, that's in the true, real yeah. world. But because of the reflections in the mirrors, he's able to attack them all at once, pulling them all into different mirrors all down this hallway. I would say when he pulls Nancy through the mirror, it's reminiscent of the original, I think, shot to mimic whenever the mom gets pulled through the little window at the end. That's true, yeah. And doesn't he jump through a mirror or Mm -hmm. something? Yeah, Yeah. it's very... They're definitely taking some visual cues from the original there. Joey chooses this moment as they're being overwhelmed by the mirror trick to unleash his dream power, which... We never learned because his horniness led him away from the moment when they were all discovering their powers. We never learned it because of his dream weakness, which is also the same as his real-life weakness. (laughs) That'd be great if his dream power was just a huge boner that killed Freddy. (laughs) That actually would make sense. They were able to reuse that snake prop after all. (laughs) Yeah, it just drops like a super load. (laughs) Good lord. That actually would fit, though, with what they've established Yeah, is the way that they do things in these dreams with the powers and stuff. His dream power is actually the use of his voice, which he has not spoken because he was so traumatized from Freddy before, I guess, which repels Freddy. I am kind of sensing a power within you type morality type lesson here to take. Okay. Like he's always had this within himself. Because I do think it's a little cheesy that it's well, just the yeah. voice and then all of a sudden Freddy's like, ah. <laughs> So I think it's more about just finding the power of belief. The first movie was basically like, we have to just know that he's not real and he's defeated. They threw that right out the window. (laughs) That's not even mentioned in this movie. No, I know. Kind of a premature celebration from Nancy. She's the one that's like, yeah, we won, we won. And everyone else is like, are you sure? She's like, yeah, we definitely won. (laughs) She should be the one that already has experience thinking that he's been defeated when he wasn't. I know, she didn't learn anything. Yeah. Nancy's father, Donald, arrives in the dream to tell his daughter that he's crossing over. He tells her that he's sorry for being such a shitty father, 
they embrace. But of course, it's really a cruel trick. It's not Officer Thompson at all. It's Freddy fucking Krueger. This is like those witches in Suspiria. I know, it's it a mean trick. trick. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of heartbroken because it did seem like Nancy had a lot of pain about a, her father. It's a nice moment of reconciliation. Yeah, it seems like she's finally getting to hear the things that yeah. she's needed to hear, and it's not real. Kristen, can you pull us out? They sedated me. We're stuck here. It's a dead end. What the hell? Sorry to keep you waiting. Perhaps if there was more of me to spread around. Say that? You found your dream power, man. You saved us, Joey. Man, you blew him away. Oh, down, man. Are you okay? I think so. He's gone. It's over. Rest. <laughs> <laughs> 
He stabs Nancy in the stomach with his patented razor fingers and then tosses her aside. Freddy, believing that Nancy is dead, is primed to kill Kristen, but a dying Nancy makes the last-second save, stabbing Freddy with his own glove. A now-revived Dr. Gordon uses holy water to purify Freddy's bones and finishes the half-assed funeral, ending Freddy's reign of terror. For good. Well, this should have been the end (laughs) i fucking hate that nancy dies and then freddy comes back several more times it sucks it's not right the imagery is hard as fuck it looks awesome she comes from behind and grabs his arm as he's about to stab kristen and drives his own glove into his own stomach it looks like a renaissance painting or something it looks really cool it reminds me a lot of Winona Ryder and Gary Oldman at oh, the yeah. end of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It has that vibe to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And she gets the, the hero's death. Yeah, and they go out together, sort of like that fake proposed ending of Sidney Prescott and Cotton Weary yeah. in Scream 2. But yeah, I think that that is poetic. I think it works. I don't think anything we got after Dream Warriors makes not having that be the ending worth it. I would have allowed Freddy versus Jason just as a fun one-off, and I would have allowed New Nightmare since it also involved Nancy. But 4, 5, and 6 are not worth it. (laughs) (laughs) They're not worth this not being the end. I'm sorry. I know that some people who are listening to this are probably fans of the whole franchise. That's fine. I feel that way about a lot of the other franchises that people make fun of, so I get it. But I love this movie, and I love the original. I just think that the character goes in a unfunny unscary direction that is lame the movies get progressively worse four in a vacuum is fine but when you factor in what you lose from these characters it sucks like in the bigger scheme of things on its own it's fine but when you connect it to everything else you're like well that sucks i don't know i'll just say i would be happy if it ended here i would be fine with that as someone who's not really that into these movies Yeah, I I think it'd be like a great ending. Yeah. Nancy's death was in Wes Craven's original Dream Warriors screenplay. Although much of the finished film had nothing to do with his script, he was responsible for Nancy's death more than anyone else. He created her in A Nightmare on Elm Street, and he's the one who killed her in this movie. So essentially the whole Thompson family ends up wiped out by Freddy Krueger. You would at least think it would be worth it if they put a stop to him. But no, he had to come back. (laughs) (laughs) After Nancy dies, Kristen manages to awaken everyone and return them to the real world. During Nancy's funeral, Neil finds Amanda Krueger's tombstone and discovers that she is, in fact, Sister Mary Helena. By the way, this spot of the cemetery, really busy in a short period of time. I know. (laughs) They just filmed everyone at the same spot. (laughs) They're just dumping all these bodies into one mass grave. (laughs) The Fred Krueger spot. (laughs) That evening... Dr. Gordon goes to sleep with the Malaysian dream doll that Nancy gave him and Kristen's paper mache house nearby. Suddenly, Kristen's house lights up from the inside, potentially suggesting that Freddy is not completely defeated. Although, hold that thought, Mm. because that's not originally how it was scripted, and I think the original version is better and would have fit with it being the end. 
This movie was intended to be the last Nightmare movie, and it was shot that way. While the ending of the film suggests that Freddy may not be dead at all, a scene in the shooting script makes it clear that it was not the case. In the scene, Dr. Gordon visits Kristen a few days after Freddy's defeat. Kristen reveals that she is moving to New York, the joke being that it's the city that never sleeps. When Dr. Gordon asks her if she is going to see her in her dreams, referring to Nancy, Kristen answers that she dreams of her every night, suggesting that Nancy guards her dreams. I'm like almost crying. This <laughs> The scene then cuts to the ending, which plays in the finish as it was scripted, in, in which Dr. Gordon is sleeping and a light turns on in the house model. It is implied that Nancy, not Freddie, turned on the light as she is guarding Gordon's dreams. It is unknown if the scene was shot, but by leaving the scene out, it makes it appear that it is Freddie who is still alive in the house. Mm. I think that that would have been like a great way to end the movie. Yeah. And it's kind of disappointing that they didn't I like the it. Nancy angle, the Nancy the protector. Much like <laughs> mm-hmm. Friday the 13th. One year later, we were right back at it. <laughs> a Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master, 1988, directed by future husband of Gina Davis, Rennie Harlan. Oh, who would also direct such notable films as Cutthroat Island and Eraser. New writers, Patricia Arquette does not return, so it's a new Kristen. Doesn't really matter anyway. All of the surviving Dream Warriors are killed off during the movie. Of course. Which is stupid, because Kincaid and Joey do return. Joey's kill is kind of memorable because it's still horny related, where he dreams that his (laughs) Playboy poster comes to life as a model in a waterbed, so it's a woman, a nude woman comes oh, up in I a waterbed. Oh, I have seen that before, yeah. It's kind of a cool yeah. kill. The movie's not particularly great, though. Nowadays, Patricia Arquette gives a pretty diplomatic answer, saying that while she loves horror films and the Freddy franchise, that she just wanted to branch out and try different things, which I think is completely reasonable, but I also think... They probably lowballed her too. They were so cheap on these I'm movies. Sure, yeah. They probably offered her no raise, is what I'm guessing. It was probably the same rate. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Yeah, I, I don't think so. Which was a good choice because I think you don't want to get saddled too much into this world. The Freddy glove that was stolen from the set of this movie was found in another movie. It was hanging on the wall of the workshed in Evil Dead 2, oh. released the same year. It was part of a continued banter between directors Wes Craven and Sam Raimi. See The Hills Have Eyes, The Evil Dead, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Evil Dead 2 for more. I think there may have actually been more than one glove stolen from this movie, but I don't know. I don't want to get into that whole thing. So to wrap things up, I'm just going to go through some of the original Craven script ideas that, that didn't really get used. See if there's anything we like more or less than what we got. In Craven and Wagner's original script, the characters were somewhat different from what was eventually filmed. Nancy was not a dream expert nor any kind of mental health professional. That could have worked because that felt like a stretch, although Mm -hmm. she does say six years, but even still, it didn't feel that believable. Kristen was named Kirsten. I don't really think that makes that big of a difference. Only stayed in the institution for a short while. She had a father, and her mother was named Alice. Dr. Gordon's last name was Guinness, and his character was much younger. Dr. Sims's last name was Madalena. Okay. Taryn was African-American. Joey was the one who built the model of the house and had trouble getting around, although he did not use a wheelchair. And Philip was a 13-year-old. 
Will's name was originally Laredo. He had long hair, did not use a wheelchair, and was the one who made the clay puppets. The script also described the ranch house where Kruger was born, and that is the house that shows up in the kids' dreams rather than the Elm Street house. Wes Craven specifies the house in his original script to be, quote, an architectural portal to Freddy's dreamscape. It is virtually a limitless world of the human psyche in all of its dimensions, so you can enter this other world through the house or dreams or madness or hallucinations or special psychic states that various people have. Contrary to the film, Officer Thompson knew from the start that Kruger was real and still alive. Kruger was missing and Nancy wanted to find him. When she finds him, Nancy learns that Kruger is obsessed with finding the house where he was born so he can burn it down. This actually kind of sounds dumb. Yeah. In the original script, there is a romance between Nancy and Dr. Gordon and they have sex. I could have done with that. I thought it was heading that way. Yeah, they kind of imply it. I feel like you get there without even having those scenes. Like I feel like he is bummed out that his future girlfriend slash wife has been killed at the end. That's how the vibe I get. I, I think so. There are scenes and lines that are reminiscent of the first film. There is no mention that Kruger's mother had been a nun or that Freddie was born of rape. Both Joey and Kincaid are killed. The deaths in this script were more grotesque. Kruger was not as talkative, and he was more vulgar, which I kind of like. Not that he's super talkative in this movie as is, but he's starting to inch into one-liners and that kind of stuff. Although Welcome to Primetime, bitch, is so good that it's a double-edged sword. It's like, it's good, we love it, it's funny, but it led to- people want more. Yeah, we got to up the ante and have him keep saying bitch all the time. Freddy is killed by Nancy using his own glove, not by holy water, and she sees through his shape-shifting trick even though she still dies. On Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy, director Chuck Russell states that Craven's original script was darker and more profane, while Rachel Talalay thought the script seemed like a $20 million script. Discussing the more humorous elements in the film, Russell stated, I looked at what Wes Craven did and said, this is absolutely great and terrifying, but I felt by the time I came along on three, the way to go was to make the whole idea of dreams and nightmares into a carnival and go further into the dreams and make Freddy Krueger more outrageous and add more of an element of dark humor. That worked, and the series went in that direction from then on. So you can kind of blame Chuck Russell there. One of his other noteworthy films that he directed was The Mask, starring Jim Carrey. Oh, wow. Maybe that's where he was always trying to push yeah. the Freddy Krueger in this film. I don't know what else there is to say other than I think it's a top quality horror sequel. It's a lot of fun. I loved the additional Freddy background lore in this one. And yeah, I, the, I, the backstory I, is awesome. It's I, cool. And it's like, as a casual fan, I had no idea that that was a part of it in this one. It kind of gets lost Amongst the franchise. Yeah, well, they retcon his origins where he do- they kind of go back to that Craven idea, even though by this point Craven is done until he comes back with New Nightmare. But they do go into this whole thing where he came from sort of an abusive, nightmarish suburban family, sort of like that jokey part in Natural Born Killers where we see the fucked up sitcom of right. Juliette yes. Lewis's life. It's sort of like that. I, that's kind of the imagery I'm thinking of for okay. some reason for Freddy's origin story. It's very hokey and weird. Hmm. I don't know. Well, then let's just say as far as horror sequels go, I mean, this is up there with any of the good ones. 
Yeah, what were your thoughts on the remake? I think it's pretty bad. Yeah. It's, it basically recreates a lot of the original film, but with zero fun and zero it's anything just grim. compelling to look at. Yeah. Yeah, it's just dreary and boring. And that actor coming off of playing Rorschach, it's like too similar. He's yeah. Like doing the same voice and everything. Yeah, they went all in on a dark and scary Freddy, which I don't mind because I think Chuck Russell did sort of put this in a, a different direction. And it worked, except the bad part is they kept pushing it further and further. And as we were saying, they get rid of the bastard son of 100 Maniacs. They completely kill off all of the stuff created in Dream Warriors. And then later on down the road, what exists from this franchise it's like oh they're bringing back hypnosil they're bringing back the concept of like the teens uniting and they're being in a hospital and that's the kind of stuff that actually worked and that for some reason they needed to get rid of it all immediately i don't know i would say that nightmare on street 4 ends up feeling like alien 3 where you're like well what the fuck is the point of joey kincaid and Kristen surviving if you're only just going to kill them off you already killed off the whole fucking thompson family and then I'm almost like, if you want to do something completely different, then just don't bring any of those people back and start over again. Yeah, like, I know, because it's a reminder of why Scream sticks with Sidney Prescott for so long, or yeah. why Laurie Strode coming back to Halloween is such a big deal. Because ultimately, the audiences do want to connect with the characters, and if you just are going to kill them all off later anyway, then why should we invest in Oh, them? I know. In those Scream movies, I never wanted Cox or Arquette to get killed. That investment... adds to like the scenes there's actually suspense because you don't want these characters to die right and so it's just a bummer that nancy gets killed and it's not ending freddie yeah now i guess you can say they retcon that by doing a new nightmare situation where i believe she wins out in the end i can't Mm -hmm. remember the end of the new nightmare but at that point she's playing heather langenkamp though it's it feels like it's something outside of the franchise itself i'd say it doesn't really feel connected to dream warriors or anything Okay, folks, let's move into segments. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Do you want to do recommendations first? I, I don't have any other ones. I've got two. I'd like to highlight a television program that's new to streaming, although it's an old show from the 80s. It's called Moonlighting, starring Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis. I made the sacrifice that all physical media collectors are familiar with, which is purchasing something so that it will then become available for everyone. This is a show that had not been on streaming and had been talked about in articles as to why it wasn't on streaming, and people seemed to want it. Oh. And it just wasn't. So I bought all of the out-of-print DVDs over time, and now it's on streaming. It has come to Hulu. I guess this is probably the first high-definition presentation. stars Sybil Shepard, Bruce Willis. It's a will-they-won't-they private investigators, private detectives, but like kind of goofy, lighthearted. Yeah, I will say when I saw it up there, I thought of you immediately. I think and, there's and I only like watch 66 it. episodes. It only ran for like five years, and there's only like 13 episodes a season yeah. or something. I've so never it's not seen, a huge investment. I've never seen any of it, and I want to. I've only seen parts of season one from the DVDs, but I'm planning on jumping in from time to time. It's probably not something I would watch constantly, but yeah. it's a cute little relationship show that was popular, and it, it sent Bruce Willis on his way to stardom. 
And my other recommendation is Barbarian, which is on Hulu and Max right now. We talked plenty about this movie last year. I'm a little bit disappointed that we haven't gotten a physical media release, but check it out in the streaming realm. It's about 100 minutes long. It's the perfect weeknight, maybe you and the wife, the kids asleep. (laughs) It's a Wednesday or a Thursday. We're getting close to Halloween. I think it's the perfect thing to turn on. It's about 100 minutes. It's going to keep you on the edge of your seat. Just a wild experience. It's a lot of fun. If you don't know anything about it. That's the best. That's the best. Just put on barbarian it's from last year it's it's a lot of fun so let's get into email send us an email greatestpod at gmail.com give us your movie anecdotes and we'll try to read them on the show we took a little break last week but we have emails to read so get yours in as soon as possible all right all right all right you go ahead you go ahead you keep it secret but you remember this when you control the mail you control information this week's email comes from longtime friend of the show kevin subject line i'm sorry for the length of this okay no no worries kevin says been loving all of the greatest october episodes just finished the friday thir- the 13th episode and can't wait to see what's next All of the recent email topics got me thinking about the relationships we have with movies. I'll start with an unfortunate fact, which was that my dad passed away in 2017. Sorry to hear that, Kevin. Yeah, man. But growing up, he and I would watch many car-related movies since he and my brother were both into that hobby. Both of them raced at a local track and also had an enthusiast's interest. That being said, we would watch movies like The Fast and the Furious, Gone in 60 Seconds, and Days of Thunder. And since his passing, I've realized how much these movies mean to me now. By no means are they masterpieces, but truly enjoyable in their own way. To most people, Nicolas Cage sang to himself, I am a bad man, as he puts on his leather jacket before stealing 50 cars, or Vin Diesel giving Paul Walker shit for granny shifting, not double clutching like you should, (laughs) is very silly and weird, and rightly so. But all these little moments remind me of the great times we had watching them. Now I'm the asshole when a group of us are out to lunch. I ask, how's the tuna here? The Fast and the Furious reference, if you didn't know. I think this all represents the relationship we build with the movies we love. And a vibe I get from the show is that it's not always about how objectively good a movie is, but how much we enjoy them. Definitely. As for my two listener requests, it's really not anything too interesting. I found both Prisoners and Blue Azorma's Color through streaming platforms and felt like I struck gold. (laughs) Well, yeah. I love both movies, and similar to you guys, Blue Azorma's Color hit me like a train emotionally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's hard to get over that one. On a brighter note, it was really hard for me to pick a run of three episodes that stood out, but I did know of a slightly longer stretch that I loved. 12, 8, 21 through 1, 26, 22. There were seven episodes during that wow. time, including Itumama Tambien, Blade Runner 2049, Heat, Roadhouse Revisited, and Inglorious Bastards. I would say a great way to end and start a new year. To wrap this up, I have a horror-themed thought question around 2005 to about 2008. I remember these horror-themed TV specials airing on TV, I believe on AMC or IFC cable channels. They were called the 100 Scariest Movies Ever Made or the 100 Scariest Scenes of All Time. 
often highlighting movies like The Shining, The Exorcist, Irreversible, or Old Boy. They would release in multiple parts, and as a kid, I thought it was so cool learning a little bit about all the horror movies without having to be scared and actually watch them myself, LOL. Just curious if you ever got if you guys ever saw these or anything similar. Yeah. I think that's how I originally became aware of Audition. Yeah. Because that scene where the guy's in the bag. Again, thanks for everything, your resident Gyllenhaal ass clown, Kevin. Yeah, actually, those clip shows, which Bravo did a lot and yeah. IFC. And I think I saw some of the AMC e, ones he was talking about. VH1. There's all different kinds. Some of them are not necessarily just horror or movie specific. The AFI lists and stuff, whenever they do their lists, although they haven't done one in, since 2007, but, you know, they would have specials or whatever. Yeah, those those programs are a good way, like an introductory level course into just learning about more movies and stuff. You can also go to like a used bookstore and buy one of those huge 1,001 movies to see before you die or some critics' picks of 1,000 movies. And yeah, I wouldn't say you want to just stick with one voice of telling you how to find things or what the best things are, but it's a good start. It's sure. a good jumping off point to finding about out about new things. But yeah, I mean, the cable stuff in the old days, for sure. It was the best. Yeah. I, I definitely watched like tons of that shit, too. That's like what 90% of VH1 was at one point, was just listing things. <laughs> I know. Best week ever. I forgot about the bit where picking like best runs of the show like yeah. in terms of episodes i enjoy that yeah so loved hearing about your stories about the car movies with your dad definitely i definitely know a lot of people who really loved that first fast and furious movie for sure it was definitely like a big oh yeah thing i saw it in the drive-in i remember very distinctly i worked with a guy that summer 2001 who would just go see it every day because it was playing at the cheap theater like the three dollar theater oh yeah and i forgot it really inspired people <laughs> you, being you in, driving around no not me people being into cars though even being in a smaller town at that point there was like multiple shops i don't even know the lingo tune shops or whatever where people were like having work on their subarus done <laughs> super i don't know whatever the whatever the cars were from that movie as you can tell matt auto enthusiast and yeah, expert over here my w two people on this show both own toyota corollas yeah although yours is probably newer than mine oh, it's got a giant dent in the back of it though oh okay yeah so let's move along to physical media spotlight she's never seen a single paul walker movie that's a huge oh no no she also doesn't care about blu-ray she's a monster it's interesting that Kevin just mentioned Old Boy because although that doesn't really fit in necessarily, I just pre-ordered a really cool-looking Old Boy Deluxe 4K from Neon, which looks very similar to my picks, which are the A24 4K releases of Midsummer and The Lighthouse. They've also done Everything Everywhere All at Once, and I'm, I think there was maybe one other 4K, right? The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, Is that I a have 4K? that one. I, I'm not sure. I think it might be. I have it, but I've never opened it. <laughs> They've also released some Blu-rays. What are you laughing at? How many things is that true about for you? <laughs> I know. I don't know. It's just funny to yeah, say that. I know. <laughs> They've released some Blu-rays as well, but the 4Ks they have in those big, longer things right. with like the special textured cases. I hope they do more. There's a few other A24 films that I would like to have special editions of that I think would look really cool. Yeah. 
I know they released Hereditary in 4K already, but that would be one. Spring Breakers, although I know Anna Perner is involved in that as well. But there's a few others that would be really cool. They're overpriced for sure, and I think they're still available on the A24 merch site. Yeah. They are pretty cool. They come with nice booklets and stuff. They're big, so they don't necessarily fit next to your other movies, but I like them. And if they release the movies on 4K that I've enjoyed of theirs, then I'll probably snag them. Hopefully they release Bo is Afraid as a 4K like that to try to recoup some of the money that that movie (laughs) lost because I think that movie lost like $40 or something. I think they knew that going in. Sure. (laughs) I think they just offered to pay that to keep Ari Aster on their roster. But yeah, so we'll see which ones they pick to do next. I'm going to do one that I can see sitting on your floor from where I'm sitting right now, which that's the situation here. Just random piles. Folks, nice good stuff scattered on the floor at Zach's apartment. I made a conscious decision to not even bother cleaning up when you come over anymore. If I can get the couch clear, that's enough. I'm doing another second site one, which they do good stuff, but we both just got this recently, a movie that we talked about Suspiria and House of the Devil briefly on the last episode, having that 70s look. I kind of feel like this movie also was able to accomplish a little bit of that older look too. Yeah, um, although I would say more 80s. but yeah. yeah, 80s, yeah. It follows just one of the cooler movies, especially in horror, over the past decade. Yeah, and it's cool because I don't think that It Follows had an American 4K. Okay, release. yeah. So the Second Sight one, I believe, in terms and, of ones you, physical ones yeah. you could buy, I think was the first 4K. And the packaging is awesome, of course. Yeah, they do great stuff. I'm eagerly anticipating their Region B Blu-ray ginger snaps collection the whole trilogy <laughs> Hell yeah even though i already own multiple copies of the ginger snaps right. trilogy that are imported from other countries but i need to get that one because it looks really nice <laughs> i don't know if you were listening to the suspiria episode i don't make great choices <laughs> folks anyway i think that'll do it for dream warriors we got two more greatest october episodes on deck so please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts, podbean etc never miss an episode if you've been with us this year you know they may come out on any night that's right close together far apart you never know what's going to happen give us the seconds etc so make sure you're subscribed follow us on x slash twitter at greatest pod and email us just like kevin greatestpod at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to read your email on the show if you'd like a free sticker or have a listener request, those are the places to reach us. We have a limited number of slots available for next year, and that number will be decreasing over time, so do not delay. And if you'd like, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. Thank you so much for listening. It means so much. Yeah. It means the world to us. And another, I, I just want to say good to hear from you again, Kev. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, and if you have potentially sent us an email and i haven't read it on the show there's a good chance that there was some kind of an issue so follow up with me which is what kevin did it seems like he maybe didn't press send the first time or something so make sure you get with me if i haven't read it because i'm trying to read everybody's i don't want to leave anyone out so if there's ever an issue please don't ever hesitate greatestpod at gmail.com we're here (laughs) okay we'll talk to you soon thanks for listening
Two hopeless losers. Yep, that's you. You're down and out. Right, at the beginning, you've got nothing. And you start at the bottom. But with a bit of hard work and the help of a, a savvy manager who shows you the light. And Who's you, that? Oh, that's a character. It's based on me, loosely based on me. You make it to the top. Our yeah. story is the story of two guys who start at the bottom and with a lot of hard work continue along the bottom and finally end up at the bottom. Oh, yeah, that's an intriguing scenario. Yeah, it's a rags-to-rags story. Yeah, imagine it. Yeah, did you see the one about the guys who started at the bottom, stayed at the bottom, and at the end they were still at the bottom? Mm, yes, that's our life. So inspirational. Who'd go and see that? I'd, I think I'd see that. I would go and see that, yeah. It's more realistic. You're thinking that, you know, you're at the end of your tether now. But what if this is just the beginning of your story? Then it's a slow start, isn't it? This is good stuff, OK? I was writing this, and at the same time, I was reading it. I mean, I couldn't put it down.